Welcome to RNFM Radio, Nursing Unleashed. We're your hosts, Kevin Ross and Keith Carlson, and we bring you inspiring interviews with a wide array of nursing experts, innovators, and entrepreneurs. We're glad you're here. So welcome and enjoy the show. Kevin Ross from Innovative Nurse and also your co-host here on RNFM Radio. Let's see, I think we are show number 46 here on Monday, January 14th, 2013. And again, welcome everybody uh, to the show. And if you think you're in the wrong place, that's not happening. Without a doubt, you are in the right place where we'll be discussing the latest news, trends, and hot hot topics in the world of nursing and healthcare. Our guest list, both past and present, span the whole spectrum from nurse authors, bloggers, speakers, entrepreneurs, leaders, and thought provokers in the industry. Welcome. And with me tonight, not only do we have our guest, but my fellow co-host, Keith Carlson in New Mexico. Keith, sir, how are you? I'm fine, Kevin. Thanks for that lovely introduction. And hello, everyone, from sunny and very chilly Santa Fe. We're going below zero this evening, believe it or not, here in the high desert. Thanks for being here. We're very excited about tonight's show and our guests and their book that was just published at the end of last year. So welcome one and all. And Kevin's going to give you a little rundown of how to find us tonight, how to find us on Tweet Chat, and how to find us after this evening. So Kevin, why don't you take it away on all of that information? That's not a problem, Keith. And if you don't know how to find us, if you're here with us, then you've already found us. So welcome. If not, uh, we are in other uh, areas here. Of course, we're hanging out on Twitter uh, under the hashtag RNFMRadio. You can either access that through TweetChat, and that's TweetChat.com forward slash room forward slash RNFMRadio. Or if you have an aggregator like Hootsuite, just uh, pull up a window and put the hashtag RNFMRadio and you can follow that feed where we'll be tweeting out uh, little tidbits from the show and certainly you can tweet back any comments or questions that you might have. And we are here on Blog Talk Radio, if and that might be where you're listening to us. But if you're not here on uh, BTR, then uh, you can certainly find us on iTunes, uh, archived, and so if you open up your iTunes application, go under podcast, and then on, in the search box, just type in all one word, RNFM Radio, and you'll find us there. And of course, quite frankly, these days, uh, we have been working on our SEO and trying to get those uh, uh, analytics up and the uh, uh, optimizing our search. And so really, if you just Google RNFM Radio, Uh, Blog Talk Radio or iTunes are going to start popping up. And, of course, we cannot forget our lovely friends over at ProMedNetwork.com. And we're over there at ProMed Network. And then that would be uh, forward slash RNFM Radio. And we really appreciate being hosted over there as well. And as always, we say it every week, and we mean it every week. 
please feel free to call in 347-308-8064 and you can either listen in or bring yourself on the show and we'd be happy to uh, entertain a few questions or comments for uh, Keith and myself, and a, but of course our guests. And there you have it. Well said, Kevin. Thanks for giving us that roundup. That's always important. And speaking of roundup, we'll let you know that at the end of the show, we'll be giving you all the information about our next three or four weeks and all the wonderful guests we have coming up. But without further ado, we would like to move forward with introducing our two guests tonight. We have two of the three authors of the book, Social Media for Nurses, Educating Practitioners and Patients in a Networked World, published by Springer Publishing Company. And Springer will be tweet chatting with us tonight live here on Tweet Chat and RNFM Radio. So, Kevin, why don't you introduce our first author, and then I'll introduce the second, and we'll get started. Well, that sounds fine with me, sir. And, you know, to all of our uh, listeners out there, we, we do have quite the lineup here. These authors are incredible and have a lot going on. So we will uh, at least try to be brief, but, can you know, at least give you a little bit of info, but they'll be able to elaborate further on what the haps are with them. So anyway, boy, that didn't sound very educated at all, and I'm among PhDs here. Gosh, that sounds Uh-oh. terrible. I am educated. <laughs> anyway, that's terrible. All right. Ramona Nelson, who does actually have a PhD and she's an RN, received a master's degree in nursing and in information science, as well as a PhD in education from the University of Pittsburgh. In addition, she completed a postdoc fellowship at the University of Utah. Prior to her current position as president of her own informatics education consulting company, Ramona was a professor of nursing and chair of the Department of Nursing, Slippery Rock University in Slippery Rock, PA, Pennsylvania. Um, anyway, she currently is serving – sorry, I'm getting shadows here from the book. She uh, she currently is serving as chair of the NLN Strategic Action Committee on Technology and Informatics and a member of of the ANA Committee on Nursing Practice Information Infrastructure. Because of her pioneering work in informatics, she was invited to participate as a member of the task force charged with revising the scope and standards of nursing informatics that was published in 2008 by the ANA. Now, of course, I'm going to uh, allow Ramona to continue on with her bio when we bring her on but then give Keith this opportunity to probably do a better introduction of a bio here um, for our next guest. Oh, my gosh. Well, Kevin, you did a fine job, and I'm sure Ramona thought it was okay. And we're going to introduce our next co-author of this wonderful book. Irene Jose, Ph.D., MSNRN, is an associate professor in the Information Systems and Technology Department and an adjunct professor in the Nursing Department and director of online learning at LaRoche College, Pittsburgh, PA, with a previous post as director of library and instructional technologies. Dr. Jose received a doctorate in education and a master's in medical surgical nursing and information science from the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Jose has taught and teaches currently office automation, management of information systems, introduction to cyberspace, computer-based training, virtual communities and social media, and nursing informatics courses to undergraduate and graduate nursing students in on-campus and online formats. Now, their co-host, I mean, their co-author, Deborah Wolf, is actually stranded at a 
airport in the southeastern U.S. right now and can't join us, though we hope maybe she'll join us at some point during the show. And if you're listening, um, Deborah, please call in when you can. But Ramona and Irene, after this long introduction, welcome to RNFM Radio. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, we're, we try not to be intimidated by our guests' incredible resumes and the number of initials they have after their names, but I have to say your biographies, all three of you actually are incredibly impressive. Thank you. I think, I think you know, nursing is one of those fields where there are so many different opportunities, in, uh, and one of the opportunities is to, is to uh, collect credentials. <laughs> <laughs> as well, well as uh, switch sometimes. <laughs> I, I do more teaching in the information systems technology department and keep my hands in nursing by working with the nursing faculty in our departments. I see. Well, but you've all done an excellent job um, collecting uh, acronyms after your name. They're all incredibly impressive, several of which I actually don't recognize, but we can get to that later. <laughs> so so can you tell us, and you'll have to speak for Deborah because she's not here, of course, what prompted the three of you to collaborate on this book in the first place? What was the initial impetus for writing this book? I think we, we started out, we had done, um, well, first of all, it was, um, I think for many of us, uh, including I, I would guess uh, both of you also, is you're suddenly aware of the massive impact that social media is having on health care in total, not just on nurses but on patients, institutions, providers. And then we started, uh, as we started to learn more about it, we started to do some presentations. And that led us to say, boy, we, you know, as you start to look at the literature, you, we kept saying that we need, a, we need a book. We need something that pulls some of this together. And one day we sat down and said, okay, which chapter can you write? <laughs> also and, uh, to note that Ramona and I have worked together since how long has it been, Ray? <laughs> a long uh, time. I think, uh, I think back uh, <laughs> initially in the, in the well, well, the first book we did together was in the 80s. We did a book that uh, had nothing to do with computers called Man, Health, and Nursing, uh, looking at how theories actually impacted your practice on a very uh, practical way. I think I, I always got turned off by theoretical concepts, sitting in a class, memorizing them, you know, when I couldn't see any applications. So we got involved with saying, how could you actually use something like systems theory to, to take care of patients? And so that was our first our first venture into writing te- writing books. Well, you know, and I, I have to say, uh, diving into a book like this, and for myself, I have a uh, previous history of website development. Back when it was like straight HTML, straight code, there was no WYSIWYG in the sense of what you see is what you get. I mean, you're writing the code for sites and, and whatnot. And mm-hmm. for me, it was quite interesting. I mean, this is really a, a tool, I feel, um, for uh, educators out there. Because it's pretty comprehensive. I mean, when you talk about Web 1.0, I mean, when we're talking about not really necessarily the birth, I guess, but certainly um, when we're talking about websites that were very static, 
They didn't mm-hmm. necessarily invite that uh, community feel or or collaboration, so to speak. It was just information was 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 in there. You plugged it in, and that was about it. You just kind of consumed it, but it wasn't really interactive. And I felt um, sort of nostalgic for a moment reading some of this information because I remember when all of this was developing in the 90s, and I was actually developing sites for companies. And I even remember having companies come to me and say, well, why do I even want a website? That's ridiculous. You know, um, and and now everybody's got a website for their dog, for their dolls or whatever. And so I found it um, quite refreshing, at least for me, uh, to really appreciate the evolution of where Web 1.0, Web 2.0 or Web 2.0 is going. And then, of course, obviously the next uh, iterations. And so what an amount of I mean, just the research that was involved in this and the old photos of the of the technology is it was incredible. Well that I think that's Irene who uh who took the pictures. Ah uh, so yes. <laughs> well I'm an amateur amateur photographer. <laughs> well you you did a great job because it really brought me back to um the old PDAs, those uh those uh handheld yes. devices that were like it's not a smartphone. I mean it's like what is this thing? It's like a digital yes. to do list. <laughs> well, and I, I remember can back, I can even go back further to when I was teaching at another university and we had to access the internet through the mainframe. Right. And we would check out these TTY terminals. <laughs> Oh. And bring them home, and then you had to put your the um, headset to your phone into a coupler in the back. Yes. And you connected at a 300 baud rate. Ooh, boy! No <laughs> monitor, <laughs> no monitor, no. and paper spewing out the back because everything you typed uh, was on the paper, and everything that the mainframe responded was on the paper. Well, and, and some of the references that you made, which was interesting at that time where healthcare providers, there were a few of those pioneers out there discussing how we're going to use this type of technology um, to to really bring the, the clinician uh, into the home of the patient and vice versa. And even like years and years ago, people were talking about that as if it was so far off. And I guess probably maybe it felt that way, but here we are today. I mean, you really yes. laid that foundation out in the book as far as, like, where we're, we're, where we've come from, you know, like, what we had to work with and what we were talking about even then. And it sounded like such space-age stuff, but this is really commonplace now. Well, and now we're talking about nanobots uh, being injected into your body and moving around your body and taking care of um, a blockage over here and a blockage over there. Um, right. And... That sounds like such science fiction, but well, um, we have to get, live fairly. I, well, <laughs> no, I was going to say, don't get our conspiracy theorists started. They might start calling in on this one because oh. of the whole <laughs> Big Brother and the monitoring and the chipping everything. So just be careful with that. I, <laughs> I read that too. No, I, I, I just look at it from the standpoint of, can you imagine healthcare with such less invasive things that we do today, doing the same thing, you know, miniaturizing things so that instead of having big, huge incisions as we see now, um, just taking care of repairing the inside of your body. 
Mm. Right. It it almost makes one it makes one think about that movie Fantastic Voyage that came back when I was a kid. It came out in the seventies, I guess. Um, yes. Where yes. the miniaturized doctors and scientists were were injected inside the bloodstream of a of a sick, famous person. Do you remember that? Yes, and they came right. out through the um, tear duct. They did. Yeah, it was it was yeah. quite. I mean, there's a lot of metaphors there. We could we could really we could go crazy with that. Um, but in terms the of other, we're not there think, yet. But no, we're not there yet. No. Um, the but when we're ready, is, I think. <laughs> go ahead. No, I'm saying with, with with the changing technology, the other parallel event that's going on is the changing uh, relationships and roles of patients yeah. and providers. Um, exactly. If we, if, yeah, if you think back you know, to what healthcare was like in the 70s and 80s, it was very, uh, very much. Uh, Dominated with a certain um, image of the, I think back here that we, I remember my nursing history of the uh, or, hierarchical organization like a convent or the army, and the ability to uh, follow orders down to the orders that were given to the patient mm. about mm-hmm. what they were supposed to do to take care of themselves and how social networking has created peers as opposed to hierarchical networks. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and in the book, you do talk about you you cover all of the different social media aspects of our current technology and what's available online. You also talk about the you give a very basic primer on various devices. So for nurses who are very new to technology, I can't imagine there must be some out there who haven't who don't know different computers, but you talk about tablets and pads and laptops, you go into all of that. But then you also I noticed in the latter portions of the book, you dip into what's coming in the future, kind of where we're headed and what's going to come next and where all of these types of developments in Web 3.0 and Web 4.0 are going to take us, or you think where they may take us. And one of the questions I have for you, in terms of nurses and in terms of especially healthcare consumers, what what do you see as some of the the risks inherent to this amount of information that's available at the touch of the button? Is are there any are, are there any red flags for you at this point? Um, I think we have to learn how to manage our reaction to personal information. Uh, historically, we have used privacy as a as a guideline, saying you know that, and and I think it's been very helpful to us to to look at ensuring privacy. But our concept of what is private is really changing, and um, we might need to look at better. At, at the concept of how we manage information and appropriate and inappropriate uses of information. To be more specific, for example, if you if you look at something like a community, and if well, you you can probably have seen on the television the Google Maps of where the flu is is happening and basing that on searches. Right. Um, and to to collect that kind of information, you're collecting information on the individual search habits of individuals, and then you're aggregating that to such information, and that is helpful to um, 
to look at then a whole country and figure out where this epidemic's moving. And probably um, you can figure it out more rapidly than our historical ways of checking uh, what's happening in public health departments and tests. So we have access to information, but on the other side, for example, I could look at the same kind of maps, uh, geographical information systems that show me a pattern of where the healthiest states are, the healthiest communities, and if I'm deciding where to put my new factory, I may use that information. Saying, why would I put my factory in a place where health is poor and my health care costs might be higher? And so I think instead of us focusing on ensuring privacy, we need to look at, because the advantage of aggregated data can be seen in the flu example, but we need to look at what is the appropriate use of information as opposed to limiting access to information only. Well, I don't know, that's a very uh, academic type of discussion. I don't know if that would, if I've well, clearly explained it and if it's something that would be of interest to talk about. I th- well, I think, though, um, maybe to summarize, it uh-huh. the data is coming in in a way that we can do something about it or do something with it quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the algorithm, al- algorithms, like the coding on the back in the background, I mean, we can take those analytics and implement something pretty quickly, uh, d- depending on what the use is. I mean, depending on what the data is and the use is. But mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, to many years ago when you're collecting data, well, you know, if we want to talk technology versus, you know, doing everything by hand, uh, yeah. I think it was obviously more challenging to extrapolate that data as opposed to the algorithms that we have access to now. And you're right. I mean, using that example as building a factory or retail or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think we should take – take that data and do something with it instead of having it um, sit in a spreadsheet or something for years. Right, right. That's, we have that's to figure a good out point. how we manage what we mean by privacy when we have mm-hmm. huge advantages from aggregating data. Right. But now, well, yeah. I think your example there of doing something with it, it's the same if you look at some of those uh, research homes that exist now where scientists are collecting data as they monitor people to keep them healthy in their homes as they age. And so you have sensors all over the place. That data is going into a database. Right. What are we doing with it? Well, and I uh-huh. think it's though that's what you're trying to get at. We need to be doing something with it if it's showing something that, uh, hey, if we – if we adjust this location here or if we do this over here, maybe the person will, you know, whatever it is that we're looking at. But you were asking about some of the disadvantages or problems that we might see, and there's uh, some interesting work coming out now on the addictive nature of technology. To right. the point yeah. where I don't know what you're talking where, about. I have no idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't been on Facebook for two weeks. Right. Yeah. yeah, right. Like our students every two minutes. Um and they're now offering detox digital vacation opportunities mm-hmm. where you go and you're they totally disconnect you from everything. And some of the research coming out, I think it's out of Chicago, is saying that it that technology is as addictive as alcohol and drugs, Uh-oh. and we need to 
detox people <laughs> periodically from that. And a few writers went to these, and they were having withdrawal. I mean, severe withdrawal because they didn't have their smartphone with them. I'm sure. Now, 24 we, we, hours is all the one person can last. Right. <laughs> now, if we if we take that concept, um, Irene and Ramona, if we take that concept and turn turn it towards nurses, doctors, and healthcare providers, we've talked on the show before about the the risks of, say, a doctor taking a history from a patient, sitting in an exam room staring into his or her tablet or laptop and almost never looking the patient in the eye. And we think about nurses in highly technological um, clinical environments who are so busy monitoring all of these very advanced and wonderful, I must admit, technologies that they have available and at their fingertips that are available to them. But what happens to the patient practitioner um, uh, interaction and interface when the technology becomes so so overbearing in that environment. Yeah, I think we have to look at how do we know what we know when we talk about, um, for example, a nurse or a physician um, working with a patient. Because if you as a and you you both have uh, you know from your background you you both have um, clinical experience where you've walked in and you. Um, you see the whole, you see that patient, you see that room, you see the way the patient's positioned, you see the color, you see the family, you see a whole gestalt of what's going on there. And I've had nurses say to me, especially um, one nurse was very poignant in her comments working in the ER about how much detail she had about the vitals on a patient and the the various uh, monitors that we could measure and how little she knew about the patient because she was increasingly involved in analyzing that data, collecting that data, analyzing and putting meaning on it, and didn't have the same amount of time looking and collecting the kind of information that we have all picked up. And I think we have to, you know, we certainly don't want to go back to the days when the technology wasn't there. Um, you know, I think our uh, our statistics of mortality morbidity would tell us that's not where we want to go. But we do have to figure out how we integrate the technology into the uh, practice. I, I've always said since I started working with technology that nurses as a group use technology to take care of patients. It's not the reverse. They don't come into work saying, if I take care of a patient, I can play on the computer. You know? hmm. so, the, so we have to look at how to make that technology work um, and not just in the in what we think of as the traditional clinical settings, but for those nurses who are also practicing on the internet. But that's well, just, that's, I, I think with the technology, you still have to remember that's a human being there, the patient who happens to need us for some reason. And the technology is going to give you the vital signs and uh, the blood gases and all that kind of stuff. But you still have to look at that patient. You still have to maintain some eye contact. You still have to make that person feel like they're important, more important than that tablet you might have in front of you. So while you're entering information into the tablet or or pulling some results up, still have to look and interact with that patient. And that's the part that I don't want us to lose. Well, and is that the piece, 
Well, is that kind of the hurdle there, I suppose, or the or the differences rather, when you say, okay, and let's for example, we'll use a physician and an RN, and so the physician uses that technology to really look at that data, to look at the numbers and decide what the treatment plan is. And then the nurse also looking at that information. I mean, we do look at the numbers, obviously. Um, But, but, you know, is it because our quote unquote position or our role, you know, part of that is to um, bring in some of that other data that we're not going to get on that computer screen and that might be okay. Well, you know what, guess what? My patient's, um, going through a divorce or there was a loss in the family or um, their dog was hit yesterday or something, some catastrophic event in their life uh, it could be skewing some of what's going on, you know, and so we're lo- we're kind of getting detached from all of that. And so is it really, is it the physician's role mostly to look at those numbers and then the nurse not as much and then spend more time with the patient? I mean, I, I wanted to get just a little controversial here with that. <laughs> I guess you know. Wait a minute. I made you yeah. assume that the uh, the nurse was at the bedside physically looking at every patient. How does the nurse take that same sensitivity and insight when looking at a posting on a website? Take some of the mm. uh, social media websites that the patients are on, and um, I don't know how. Um, you know, I can think of a number of the ones that are that are very well known. Uh, patients like me, Inspire. Um, Caring Bridge, when you're a nurse and you're monitoring or you're working with patients whose your communication is on that website, what skills do you need to have that same sensitivity that you're looking at for the nurse to have at the bedside when the patient isn't in the room? How do we teach them those skills and what are those skills? Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Very, very good point. Now, I'm I'm curious about the book because this book I mean we could talk about what we're talking about for hours here but I want to turn towards your book because that's why you're here and again for our listeners it's social media for nurses educating practitioners and patients in a networked world and if you would like to talk with the authors or with us make a comment of course you can find us on tweet chat at pound rnfm radio or on twitter but we would love to have you call and that number is 347-308-8064 now Ramona and Irene in terms of the book and what you're talking about in ter- when we think about social media and about these amazing leaps in technology that are happening, uh, the rate of change is so vast I can't even quote what the number is now. Maybe you can. But things are changing so quickly. How are nurses receiving this book and do you feel like it's reaching more educators and students, or is it also of interest to nurses who are not in academia or currently studying in the academic environment? We we don't know the answer to that question, only because the book came out in November, and we have gotten, uh, at this point, I haven't seen um, any, you know, any of the usual places on the Internet where you look for reviews. I haven't seen anything uh, yet, so I don't know... Um, I don't know what the reaction is to it. I did see it move up a little bit on the uh, go- on the Amazon pages, and I don't know what that means. I'm not too good at uh, I, you know, I didn't go in and look at their algorithm for figuring that out. Uh, the book, though, our, our goal was not to just be um, useful to educators, although we certainly 
think that educators have a huge responsibility to prepare nurses for social media. Um, but we thought also that um, nursing administrators need to be prepared for for this um, this phenomenon that's changing uh, nursing. Uh, nursing um, nurses at the bedside need to be prepared to respond to patients, um, and nurses on the internet are, I think, uh, you know, people like yourself and have a lot to. Uh, to help us understand in terms of have a lot of knowledge and skills that can help us understand how we can use our nursing skills in this new environment. But And so we hope to open up a conversation and to um, provide, as you pointed out earlier, some of the basic information in a, a systematic, organized way, um, some sense of the history, and some challenge to where do we, we're all nurses, how do we get together, and how do we go forward with using these tools for our patients? Well, I can, and I can only speak to a few personal emails I've received uh, of people. Uh, apparently, the book's out also in an e-text version. And I have had um, two former students who purchased the book that are practicing um, bedside nursing. I've had three former colleagues who are nursing faculty um, purchase it because they wanted to update their skills to see what of this social media out there they could incorporate in educating the future generation of nurses. Um, but, the, you know, that's only personal contacts that people had sent me emails and, and um, wanted some further information to say that they got in the book and they're reading right through it. So apparently it's not difficult to read. No, I, I don't think so at all. I mean, I, I think it, it definitely can be for... Uh, those that are tech savvy, again, for myself, feeling a little bit of nostalgia. Um, and then, obviously, for someone who's really starting out. And, you know, technology is uh, running at a rapid pace. I actually just upgraded my smartphone while we were on the uh, show just now. So I usually upgrade about every 30 to 45 minutes, um, just to say with the latest technology. Let's see. Are, might you be addicted? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Not I was at actually, all. Oh, okay. I, <laughs> I, I was actually uh, clean for about three months up until tonight's show. So, um, oh. you know, so now that I'm on the show, I, uh, I've relapsed. I've actually got a relapse here. But what I did want to talk about, uh, because the, you know, we talk about the the ever changing healthcare system, and we're talking about the technology and, and those meshing now how we provide the care. But when we talk about the documentation. And as you mentioned in the book, the uh, EMR, so the electronic medical records, I wanted to, you know, whatever information you might have in this sense is what about cloud storage? Can you talk about the cloud? Because we talk about the cloud, whether it be in healthcare or not in healthcare. And so what really what does that mean and how can we keep it secure? Is it secure and how are we using that? Well, cloud storage. Okay, Ray. I was, uh, well, you know what? Why don't you take it from the te from the ten form what you have, and I'll come back with HIPTA. Okay. Well, cloud storage. Um, a lot of people are moving as a backup means of accessing uh, data, as well as anywhere I am, I can access my data. Um, I have concerns in healthcare because you have to check out the cloud service that you are doing unless you have a private cloud service with a specific institution that has all these safeguards, like a healthcare institution that has their own private cloud. 
but a lot of the um, public or service uh, clouds that are out there really need to take a look and see what can they do with your data, how secure is it, who has access to it, et cetera. But it's, it's coming, it's here, and it isn't going away, um, especially with all our mobile devices. I love the sound of that. And <laughs> I, 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 well, I, I just like the, the um, opportunity to be able to pull up a patient's data from no matter where I am. Where? I'm, I'm, I'm a patient advocate, so I, I own a consulting company. And so I could be in an ER with a patient and trying to talk to the docs and nurses. And they're asking me about some recent lab work or diagnostics. And I can pull all that stuff up from my phone. Yep. And you know so and i and i definitely heard so we were i guess what i wanted to touch on is so what about the hipaa compliance here because quite frankly i as as someone who has uh done a lot of research and experimentation with certain products and services what are we dealing with as far as uh, you know what hipaa is is saying using this type of information and how we store it how can we use this safely in a sense and and protect you know, privacy. Yeah. I think uh, with HIPTA, HIPTA is not going to look at, not usually look at a specific technology. Of course, the uh, Office of the National Coordinator is looking uh, at specific uh, configurations and certification for meaningful use, but but, if, but HIPTA is from the Office of uh, Civil Rights, and the High Tech Act does impact what's in HIPTA. HIPTA has very clear rules about what you are, what you should be doing uh, in terms of your administrative uh, structure, your technical structure, et cetera, to ensure privacy. And when you start to look at a, at a cloud, cloud can mean a lot of different things uh, besides mobility in terms of where that data is actually, who, who has access to it, and how secure is it. And um, I think that uh, what's a challenge is uh, making sure if you're a healthcare um, institution uh, or a small practice, et cetera, is that the vendor that you're selecting for your cloud support actually is uh, is structured with the technology and the uh, security that HIPTA would require them to demonstrate. So okay. I think that's that's the issue. But the other piece that I, I want to go back on that you you mentioned being in the ER and pulling up your data. And I wondered if were you pulling your data from your personal health record or from your electronic medical record? And if it would be helpful I can to to clarify what I mean when I use those terms. Right, right. Um, yeah, the the electronic medical record um is the record that uh the medical institutions as a unit would pull together showing your medical data. So it may have data from several different providers, but it uh, and it it may be in some sort of a network setup between uh, on an international health-based highway. But it is your medical record with all the HIPAA requirements setting on it. Um, your personal health record is the record you elect to uh, develop, and if you that record now may be tethered to an electronic medical record and because it's tethered it may be protected by HIPAA but it isn't necessary but if you elect to put your data in another site it's your data you're allowed to put it wherever you want you can post it public on you know on a web page on the on the internet it's yours 
information. So if you put it there, that's your decision. Right. And I think you know that that some of the some of those concepts can be confusing for some for people when they're thinking about their electronic their personal health information. Well, and okay, so I I definitely have the 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 definitions down and that does clarify it. But for someone for the services that my company provides, we have mm-hmm. staff that go out into the field. And so being uh somewhat tech savvy, <laughs> whatever that mm-hmm. I mean, I I do. I carry around the ability to, we have electronic medical records that are baked into our our corporate entity. So we have servers that we can access from anywhere. Um, so we have private cloud, and okay. for some of the projects that we work on that don't necessarily involve patient information, we just use straight up cloud, like Amazon S3, as you mentioned. Uh, typically, they're they're the backbone of a lot of those um, syncing programs, like Dropbox, SugarSync, Box.net, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. S3 usually is is what hosts those uh, services, but I do. I have the ability to actually pull up that data no matter where I am on my computers from my smartphone. Who populates your data for you? Where is where are you getting your uh for your lab work or your pharmacy data or your uh x-rays or your or your surgical reports? Who's well, populating the data fields for you. That's the that's the challenging piece because it would usually either be a staff member, uh someone on our team that would pull in all of this information or because we subcontract uh, our services through certain organizations that provide uh, the care. So let's say that this person is a developmentally disabled individual and they're receiving residential services from a, a company um, and they hire my company to provide the medical pieces of it. So maybe somebody from their team populates that stuff on my server or we create these uh, codes that, that talk to uh, Quest Diagnostics or certain EMRs to pull in that data and it just kind of populates automatically. So, but we have it in a fashion where if you were to pull up Epic or Meditech or something like that, um mm-hmm. n- I don't want to ding them at all, but I like my program a lot better because it's uh it's it's something that's a lot more streamlined, it's not heavy at all and it's easy to access from anywhere. And so it's still you pull up the the H&P, the recent labs, uh, I can look at x-rays, CT, all that stuff. And the doc can look at it right there on my tablet if he or she wants to. Now, if if, if I are, – your, is the people – are your uh, customers institutions, healthcare institutions, and you're, and you're populating for them, or are they individuals with their own personal records? If I came in and said to you, hey, I li- I'd like to have a record I can take anywhere with me, um, here's where I get my health care, can you pull that data in for me? I'll give you permission to act. Yeah, sometimes we do that. I mean, we do work with private uh, people who hire us out to do certain things like that. So let's say that uh, someone hires me out to work with a family member because they're uh, high risk, they're a frequent flyer to the ER, they need that kind of support. So they pull together, we can pull together a uh, almost like a, a, a personal record in a sense where they, they put it on our servers and we have access to it and it can constantly update as and they and they sign that waiver to say that it'll sit on our server um you know we protect it and whatnot. But that's that's one scenario. But yeah, no, it's organizations that I contract with that my company contracts with that they 
we sign, you know, the, either the patient or a guardian or someone signs something that basically states that all of this information is going to be shared with my company and that I will uh, use, you know, the standard safeguards, you know, that a bank would or any other institution would to protect the data and use that data only for uh, treatment or diagnostic purposes. So if I, if I was, for example, a physician's offices and I was looking for somewhere to host my medical data for my practice, your site would be one of the companies I might consider? No. you. I mean, you don't want to go yeah. – I mean, I, we're not a hosting service. I just um, – in sort of my tech enthusiast or enthusiasm build uh, platforms to host a lot of this stuff. Or I, I hang out with a, a couple of um, – programmers and engineers who can basically develop this stuff. And so they develop their own uh, EMRs that they either resell to me or they just develop from, from my company. And, mm-hmm. and and Kevin, if you wanted to branch out, it sounds like that's a direction you might be able to go. But I'm sure there are many companies out there who are creating these sorts of um, these sorts of services for, say, a doctor's office who wants to aggregate all of their information for their patients, put it up in the cloud so that it can be accessed in various localities. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, Ramona and Irene, I'm, I'm curious, I don't mean to derail this aspect of the conversation, but um, going back to your book for a minute, I'm curious, um, do you feel any pushback from the nursing community, as you write this book, as as you as you wrote this book, as you did your research, is there any pushback? Is there any resistance out there to the technology, to social media? Do people feel like it's moving too fast? Do they feel like it's changing the face of nursing? Is healthcare changing too quickly? What are you hearing in your conversations out there in the academic and clinical worlds? I'm I'm hearing. Um not, I don't know if pushback's the word. It may be. Um, I'm hearing anxiety about people making inappropriate decisions on what information is communicated and how it's communicated. And um, it's. And I think sometimes the newspapers with some of the stories that are very true uh, of people inappropriately posting pictures of patients or... Uh, uh, you know, some of, the story, some of the information we even put in the book showing... Uh, totally inappropriate uh, use of information has created, I think, some degree of concern in the uh, profession, and I think the evidence of that is the tone of some of the uh, um, products that we've seen from the from the ANA and and from the state boards of nurse pra- practice. That, and I'm not. I'm thinking these documents are very helpful. I'm not trying. I'm not um, criticizing them, but the, they do carry a tone of "be careful." And it's true that people do need to be careful. Um, and so I think I'm hearing that that anxiety, that concern, which is holding people back a little bit for, from talking about how can we maximize the benefits, because we're afraid we're going to really mess up. And I think that's probably not unusual for nurses. They they are always concerned about doing. Yeah, doing it, doing things right, not making mistakes. Right. Sometimes innovative is hard not to. My concern sometimes has to do with some of the comments I hear from younger nurses versus older nurses, and younger nurses making comments that um, the older nurses won't accept that that latest um, technology or that latest whatever. And I always remind them that I'm not one of your generation. (laughs) 
I'm <laughs> one of the older generation, and I'm embracing technology. So don't make global statements of this divide you're trying to make between older nurses who have a different way of practicing but has but need to embrace and learn and work with the technology versus the younger nurse that says the, it's the older nurses that, that don't want to embrace the technology. I don't think that's uh, true at all. Interesting. Now, so in a way, it's like there's, there's a perception. I, I, don't, I don't mean to borrow this phrase, but I can't think of another one right now. So there's a perception by some younger nurses that there is a quote-unquote digital divide between them and the older nurses. Not that the older nurses don't have access, but that the older nurses won't embrace or use or champion the new technology, right? Is that what that's, I'm hearing that's you say? That's correct, yes. And I keep on reminding them that I am the of the older generation <laughs> uh, and that many of my colleagues who also uh, walk around with their smartphones and their iPads, et cetera, and look things up and, and help people out by finding things on the Internet health-wise, et cetera, uh, are of the older generation. Hmm. I see. Okay. So how do we... How do we bridge that divide? Do you feel like this book is one of those tools to bridge the divide, to kind of create a level playing field in terms of access to information and understanding of what's actually happening now? I hope so. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that uh, by bringing everyone up to speed and understanding the technology and the impact of the technology, uh, and there's that we can we can start to move beyond the concern with what's new and what what its opportunities and dangers and start to really innovatively use uh, social media and really understand it. I, I'll give you an example from from the work you're doing uh, with the blog and so forth. As you look across your blog and a number of other blogs, um, we've seen a whole different image of nursing than we saw. 10, 15, 20 years ago when most of the image came out of uh, TV shows. True. Good point. Very good point. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, as we, we're just moving into a whole new world and we're not sure um, what it means. And sometimes, um, sometimes people are naive. For example, uh, people, um, a, a simple problem like, you know, I have, a, I have an emergency situation. I want to send a quick text message to a physician. Um, but if I send it on my cell phone, it's probably not secure. Mm, thank you for saying that. <laughs> thank you so much for saying <laughs> that. Um, I think that comes up all the time. And this is where, you know, I I was just, I was tweet chatting a little bit with, I think it was Dara over at, at Springer Pub here on Tweet Chat. And we were going back and forth just a little bit about the security of the cloud. And I don't really have that many concerns about the security of the cloud per se. My concern comes to really what you're talking about, about texting a doctor with your personal phone and putting private patient information there. And people don't realize even that that most email is not encrypted. So if you mm-hmm. if you go into your Gmail while you're at work in the nurse's station and you email a doc from your personal 
web mail about a patient, that is not secure. That is going through so many, I don't know what you'd call them, Kevin, you'd probably know, but there's gateways or, or, or whatever where that information is going where anyone could probably hack in and get that information. And that's where most of my concerns come from personally. Right. Well, where- now, one of my uh, one of my FBI colleagues uh, always says and reminds us that it's the end user that is the biggest security risk in any um, technology system. Mm-hmm. It it seems like commonplace now that the technology is working on the handshake as as it's sort of when you're talking about that, Keith. Um, when you're sending that information out and then the information is received on the other end. That I I think that their company I think the companies are trying to keep up with that that piece. But yeah, um, smartphones get lost, tablets get lost. Um, I mean, we have to. I know for myself, I personally take uh, the opportunity each and every uh, moment I can with any new technology that I have. I encrypt all of my tablets or smartphones. So if they get lost, stolen, or whatever, I can erase it. From no matter where I am, and quite frankly, it's locked down anyway. So, you know, I, I definitely take that extra uh, precaution, at least on my right. end. Well, I'm, I'm glad you do that. I think most of us don't know how to do that. And the book, Social Media for Nurses, does what one thing I like about it, Irene and Ramona, is that at the end of each chapter, there are exercises and questions. It's kind of like a study guide almost at the end of each chapter that actually really challenges the reader to do you know, deep self-assessment of knowledge and also challenges the reader to actually go and try some of these technologies. For instance, it suggests or, or it suggests to the reader that the reader could go and start a blog and figure out, okay, how does this blogging thing work? Or start a podcast or or access online EMRs or health records and figure out, okay, what's this company about? What do they do? How do they publish this information? Is this information safe? Is the company publicly traded? Is it private? So I like that in the book, you also go into some of those economic and other issues that many of us probably don't even think about when it comes to these technologies. Yeah, I think well, thank you. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think it's to, uh, I think when we look at what do nurses need to know, we 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 look at nurses one their own practice like we just had the example of the cell phone or two their their role in teaching uh patients and uh patients when faced with a uh, most patients, when faced with a sudden serious illness, um, are very well willing to trade any sense of privacy for information and help. And so they and they're willing to go onto sites and any advice they would get from professionals to use a certain site, uh, they will they will move forward with that. And these sites I provide a kind of support that um, many of our patients have needed. But I think that we haven't always understood, um, because the site appears to be free, we haven't understood how they pay for their services. Right. Now, um, some of the sites are very transparent about their, the fact they data mine the data mm-hmm. that, of, these, of the different postings. Others are not so, uh, not so much. In terms well, of when you read, you know, what, when you read their business model or their, their information... Um, 
And yet, if you go in and look at what people are posting and how people are communicating with each other, it's obvious that uh, whether they're a for-profit, a not-for-profit, uh, whether they're transparent or not transparent, they are um, they are meeting a need. When you read the postings and see what people are saying on these sites, um, and also they are they are meeting not just an emotional need, but a, a very interesting uh, educate cognitive or educational. Uh, need because if you listen to some of these discussions patients are having with each other uh, about the latest research, the clinical trials that are going on, the different diagnostic tests, what they tell, what they don't tell, uh, those are very high-level discussions. I am so glad that you're talking about this because I, I did uh, make a note about sort of the consumer-centered virtual health communities that you discussed in the in the book. And uh, for me as a clinician, I almost feel like, you know, evidence-based practice is happening right before my eyes, in a sense, and we're streamlining it, and and we're getting to the crux of a few of the issues sometimes. You have these controlled studies here. I mean, I realize that there are phases, you know, for, you know, pharmacological Mm -hmm. phases, phase one, two, three. And and so I, I for one, as a consumer myself, I love consumer reviews, uh, ratings of certain you know, products or services. But when you hear about what people are experiencing with a certain medication or a diagnostic study or diagnosis or whatever, I mean, that's just amazing to watch that unfold. And and I don't I don't know if, if you agree if that, that is even um something that you feel is uh is is happening in the sense of, you know, evidence based practice is literally um just I don't know. Do you feel like it's better because of this? I think some of those uh, consumer sites are a uh, potential gold mine for supporting evidence-based practice mm-hmm. um, because what you are getting when you mine that data is what's actually happening to that patient from the patient's perspective as well as, I mean, they go through signs and symptoms. Some of them take pictures of what they look like. And, I mean, it is just amazing. And my students are always, when I send them to some of those sites, they say, I can't believe patients are putting those things on the uh, the websites out there. Uh, it's an eye-opener for them. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have a few of them now who are, who are looking at it to say, what is it that I can contribute out there to make sure that they're getting uh, some good information but that we might be able to glean some of that that and alter our practice. Right. I, I mean, I, I definitely look at that as I've had patients report very similar, either a symptom or an adverse reaction or whatever that is, and it's just, I don't want to say refreshing because it's not nice to hear about those things, but to see that there, there's like a cohort, there's like a group of people out yes. there reporting the same thing, and you're like, oh. And how come that, that doesn't appear in any of our reference right. books? <laughs> the, the literature is not explaining it that way, but there are all these people out there that are, Saying experiencing I'm, it, I'm feeling this way, and it doesn't feel nice, and I'm very upset. And it's like the community just, oh, I, I love that. Again, I'm sorry for their, uh, you know, the issues that they're experiencing, whatever that is, but um, it's just refreshing to kind of see that uh, in a community where it is dynamic and there's, you know, engagement, and and I think people. Just feel relieved. See, and this, like, this is why I think nurses need to be involved in those sites because they can look and say, oh, 
10 of these patients are, I mean, that's not like thousands or millions, but 10 of these patients are doing this to take care of that issue, and it's working for them. Right. And now we as a nurse can say, is there any reason they shouldn't be doing that? Is there any adverse uh, effects that we might think about that they might not? Uh, Or is this something I should add to my repertoire of things that I suggest to a patient because look how it's working here? Right. You know, I just think it, it has a whole new flavor of taking a look at nursing practice and what we yeah, can do right. to help. Yes, yes, it does. It does. And I think for all of us nurses to become versed in these technologies, to understand them and to watch the changes and keep our finger on the pulse, so to speak, of what's happening out there, because sometimes we'll find that the patients are ahead of us in terms of what's happening in terms with technology, with what they can do, what they can find, what information they can glean online. And like you said, posting photographs of the rash that they have on a website. So we have to really keep our finger on the pulse too and make sure we understand what our patients are finding and what they're what they're using out there. I think too we have yeah. to think of ourselves in, in a in a different role and sometimes so rather than be the uh, whether we know uh, more than our patient or be the expert, uh, we have to figure out how we can be a colleague with our patients, and especially uh, some of the patients who are uh, really uh, out there, find, they're focusing on their problem and their specific areas, and they are develop a great deal of expertise. And so how do we work with the patient who and help the patient? Uh, how do we make ourselves helpful to a patient who has, a great deal of expertise about their disease, maybe more than we have. Mm. That's very true. I, I could say I work with several patients now who are incredibly informed. I have a patient who has a neurological disease, and she knows much more than I do about her particular illness, her symptoms, her side effects, her medications, the interactions between the medications. So I do allow her and I allow myself to allow her to educate me about what's happening and about what her thoughts are in terms of where she wants to go next, what she needs next, or where where her doctor thinks she's going and whether she agrees with her, her doctor or not. And I have to meet her where her knowledge level is, and often her knowledge base is much more developed than mine when it comes to her disease process. Yes. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, are we teaching any of those concepts to our uh, to our current uh, students, or are we still teaching them how to set up a lesson plan, which is, of course, important, but are we are we also teaching them how to start where the patient really is, rather than where the patient where we think the patient would be if they were newly diagnosed? Mm. So, I'm, a, I'm I'm hoping some of the exercises. One of the reasons. Uh, and Irene was when he came with this idea of saying every one of those exercises should have objectives and a purpose. And I'm hoping that's helpful um, to faculty as well as students and as well as people who pick the book up and say, okay, I've got to learn something about this social media. Mm-hmm. That, as you said, it's a study guide. But I hope that those uh, help to not just learn the theory. And if you read the chapters, they tend to be conceptually based. And but nurses, we all apply what we you know we all learn that stuff so we can use it. And uh, the exercise hopefully uh, 
bring people to the point where they actually start to feel comfortable and start to automatically begin to use some of those skills. And my my concern with the exercises, too, was that we begin to make sure that nurses can learn how to learn about technology because they're not going to be in courses all their life. They're going to be learning independently. And so this might give them a frame that says, okay, if I want to blog or if I want to do a group um, site for a group of my patients, then uh, what site am I going to pick and why am I picking it? Uh, what technology am I going to use? So that they start developing some of those critical thinking skills that says, how do I compare these things? How do I make an intelligent decision about what it is we ought to be doing? And so that's why the, some of those exercises have a little more thinking than keystroking. Right, right, exactly. And we we really want our nurses, whether new or seasoned, to really understand, like you said, I, I think you said, that they need to understand how to study this information. It's not just to understand it, but also how to stay yes. on top of it and how to yep. keep themselves informed, right? Is that what you were saying? That's that's correct. Yeah, okay. I think there's skills that some of us might take for, for granted at this point. Uh, if um, someone says to you, hey, there's a new uh, app here or a new program there, you don't expect to know how to use it, but you feel comfortable going in, putting it down on your computer, messing around a little bit, see what it does, see what happens. You've developed a set of exploratory skills on how to learn new media. Mm. And uh, that's some of the skills we'd like to see nurses have because these, these, the technology is, as you said earlier with your phone, changing by the minute. But you have certain basic skills, I'm sure, that, that uh, give you a certain level of comfort to just go in there and try it out. Right. I mean, you don't click your computer once in a while. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but it means you don't panic either. Right. Well, you know, at the rapid pace, you know, that we're we're discussing here and uh, uh, confidentiality and ease of, uh, you know, one electronic medical record talking to the next and, um, like I said, keeping patients' uh, information confidential as we blog and vlog and tweet and, and discuss issues and get involved in these uh, consumer-centered virtual health communities what what projects do you you see or, or developments uh, that uh, are either happening, they're in development now, or need to happen? Uh, you, you know, the, that's that's being crucial. Uh, you know, for this subject of social media, nursing, technology, and healthcare as we move forward. I mean, what what's going on now, uh, and and what can we expect um, that that's going to be vital for for these. Uh, not only these up-and-coming healthcare providers, but but even the seasoned professionals out there as well. I think one of the things that I think we're going to see married, and it's going to be fascinating to watch the concept of decision support that we're building into many of our uh, electronic uh, health records in the, in the clinical settings. Uh, you know, and, and right now it may be alerts or it may be warning, you know, warnings about <laughs> cetera. But the, what we've learned about how to build in decision support so that it's not just an irritating alert that keeps going off, but actually supports someone in practice, marry that idea to the semantic web, web 
and say, how can we build decision support and uh, an intelligent web design to support uh, a number of different things, not just healthcare, but but my interest is specifically is how can we build that into Web 2.0 so that when you sit down and say, yeah, I've got this funny pain, and you start to do that search, or I see this rash, and I think all of us have had something or someone in our family, and we start trying our own self-diagnosis. Mm-hmm. How can we build semantic webs that support all levels of, of health literacy, from the uh, expert in health care to uh, the child who's just beginning to learn? I think another area that we really haven't touched a full lot on, I mean, we address it in the book, though, are our licensing laws. Um, you have a, like an RN, you're, you're um, registered in a particular state. And yet, if we start practicing over the internet, and your patient is who knows where, uh, I think we're going to see some uh, additional work with uh, licensing uh, regulations and laws. Mm. Thank Great. you for mentioning. Yes, thank you for mentioning that because when I was reading that statement in the book, I was thinking, okay, I used to live in Massachusetts, which is not part of the Nursing Licensure Compact, the NLC, which comprises, I think, 22 states in the United States right now. But I moved to New Mexico, which is part of the compact, so I'm now covered. My license is valid in 22 states. So I would assume that this Nursing Licensure Compact especially in terms of this aspect of virtual healthcare and digital healthcare is going to have to change at some point to accommodate our ability to provide say telenursing over state lines and over you know from one region of the country to another i think you might also see it uh, crossing some country boundaries wow, wow. it's okay. it's going to like i said <laughs> well it's... look you live, you you work in montana uh, lots of people from Canada come to Montana for health care. True, true. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, this uh, is, now, this is now have you're to doing move. the telehealth with them because they're back in Canada. Right. Mm, okay. So I, I think you might also see some, some movement. I'm not saying tomorrow, <laughs> but I think those issues are going to um, have to be addressed. Well, and I you think know, the, I, the other place where they they are really impacting is international businesses because uh, Europe has a different, uh, very different set, especially the um, uh, the union and the and so how how they you know their rules about privacy and privacy of healthcare information, uh, how that works whenever you have an employee who is uh, working for one of the international companies. And is traveling between the countries is uh, another place where we need international medical records. And there are people actually looking at at some of those issues uh, and working on some of them because because it's very important because the people that are making these trips are some of their some of their key executives. Mm -hmm. Mm. Wow, very interesting. Now I'd never really thought about the. I'd never really thought about the international aspect of this. So so that'll be that'll be a very interesting development to see how we deal with this, how these compacts develop and how interregional, interstate and international agreements get made in terms of telehealth. Yeah. 
Well, the countries that you know that are that are, um, use the euro as the common uh, currency okay. have just huge change in their laws related to uh, privacy. Historically, they had set up a set of principles and said each country, you know, make your own law, but these are our principles that we're going to operate under. That got to be um, a confusing mess uh, when it came to uh, medical information. And so now they are undergoing a major change where they will work with one set of laws. But, as I said, uh, you know, the United States is not, one of, is not part of that group, and a number of other countries aren't. So, uh, so people in informatics mm. and medical records are looking at this. Um, and how how and there are some uh, some agreements because it impacts international trade that are yes. already in place. In fact, um, I honestly can't remember the, the details, but one of the things that Facebook's last suit, last lawsuit involved uh, failure to honor those international agreements. Mm. Well, I I can foresee another book coming from your. Uh, trifecta of authors on these changes in terms of licensure and cooperation internationally and interregionally as all of these these networks and and uh, telehealth and telenursing develop over the next few years. Right. Well, uh, in this field, a book uh, needs revised almost <laughs> almost by the time you get it out in print. True. That's to, true. To see the changes. Yeah. That's right. Well. Programs like your program, where you know it's it's so current, mm-hmm. you know it's the it, it blog versus the print. It is, right. and and I just upgraded my smartphone again, so that's how you know oh, technology is okay. moving. So, so <laughs> I, I think you better go to that uh, digital detox vacation. I did. Well, <laughs> I and think I, so. You know, and I'm so glad that we did kind of touch on the compact. Uh, state and you know international um, you know the telehealth piece and I almost, I'll make a bold statement here I mean I think international is just going to be an archaic term one day because proximity is just going to be relevant I can look right on the screen you know with on Skype with somebody who's in India and it's just they're yeah, yeah. right here with me and so like I said I'll just make that bold statement that maybe that will be one day you know what really is international um, because we are all so interconnected Right. We just have to figure out that culture piece because remember that old saying that culture eats strategy for lunch. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Well, you might be interested. We're in three weeks. We're having Beth Lincoln. She's a master's level nurse who's a specialist in cultural competence. So she'll be talking with us about cultural competence and cultural awareness in healthcare in just a few weeks. So maybe we can address some of those issues when we talk with her. So that would be yeah, very think- interesting. Yes, that would be very exciting to look at what is the impact of social media and, and what is the future. Right. Uh, well, well, we'll bring that question to her. I'm going to write that in our in our Google Doc for the next show. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, Ramona Nelson and Irene Jose, we want to thank you so sincerely for coming on the show. We were so excited to first learn about this book, and I contacted Springer Publishing. They were kind enough to send Kevin and myself both uh, copies of the book to review. Uh, my review is up on Digital Doorway today at digitaldoorway.blogspot.com and, and our listeners can read that review and it's also been out on Twitter and Facebook so you can find it there. And speaking of finding you all, it sounds like the best place to find you is www.springerpub.com. Is that correct? And we can actually buy the book from the Springer Pub website? You can buy the uh, book from the uh, Springer website and uh, 
You can also, I can give you my, my email, which is fairly simple, because it's uh, it's Ramona Nelson, all one word, at Verizon.net. Great. Okay, so Ramona Nelson at Verizon.net, and they can email you in terms of getting in touch or buying the book? Uh, buying the book, they should go to the publisher. Um, okay. I, I really have no, no part in that piece. But if there's questions or follow-up or comments, I would love to... Love to hear them, and um, and I would uh, if I would hear from any of your audience. I would of course want to CC you back, unless I was you know specifically asked a question that that was asked to keep confidential. Right, but, um, we honor HIPAA here on RNFM Radio. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm and, Irene dot Irene dot Okay, great. And we'll try to get those up on Twitter as we can um, on the tweet chat so people can find out how to contact you. Please send our best to Deborah Wolf. We're sorry she wasn't on the show, but I'm sure she'll listen in later and hear what a wonderful job you all did representing her and the work she did with you on this really wonderful book that we really want to support and make sure nurses and nursing students and academicians know, know that it's out there. Thank you, and thank, thank you for you all for the having you're us. doing. Uh, as I said, you're changing the image of nursing, and I think it's a valuable contribution. Thank you so much. You, you all have a wonderful night, and we'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. Night. Okay, good night. Well, Kevin, I, I realized I just said academicians instead of academicians. Is that is that right? I, I don't even know how to pronounce that word. It's it's okay. We've kind of uh, maybe we're in awe in the presence of you know all of these credentials uh, here uh, on the radio show tonight. So uh, I think we kind of each flubbed up a few things here, but nonetheless, I had a uh, wonderful time. And sorry, we got a little too techy there just for a moment. Um, oh, it's I'll, have okay. to ex- I'll have to excuse myself, but you know how it goes. I love technology. I know. You can't help it. I know, Kevin. It's okay. I I don't blame you at all. But we do want to encourage our listeners to go check out Social Media for Nurses, Educating Practitioners and Patients in a Networked World. You can find it at springerpub.com, and you can also just find it on amazon.com. So that's a fine place to find it as well. And I think it helps their analytics when they buy it from Amazon. Right, Kevin? I would agree that that algorithm is pretty tight and they'll know what's going on and then they can take that data and use it right away. They can. That's right. So we want to support them because it really is an important book. I think it is It is a very academic book and it's geared towards study. But, you know, as a nurse who's not in the academic arena right now, I still find it very interesting. Though I must admit, I probably won't do many or any of the exercises or study questions at the end <laughs> of the chapters. I'm too busy. Yeah, you, you've graduated at this point, so you're. I guess so. I guess yeah. So. Okay. I mean, okay. I'm I'm exploring social media and and virtual worlds every day, probably more than I should, and maybe I should take another one of those those virtual vacations sooner than later. And but I think you're due first, Kevin. Yeah. Well, the the only problem is, is like when that's sort of like the uh, you know the foundation almost of uh, being an entrepreneur in your business and engaging. Uh, in conversation, but yes, you're right. I I even mentioned this. Um, I did a video post just recently when we were talking about all this technology and you know emailing and tweeting and Facebook. You know, I, I was still advising people: pick up the phone, talk to someone, meet people. Uh, right. You know, you're invited to a party just to have a conversation. It's not always about selling. 
you know, just enjoy the conversation and just let it grow organically and evolve. Right. And, right. You know. Well, I'll just I'll just say to some of our listeners out there, I know a lot of you already know that that Anna Morrison, who was one of the original founders of RNFM Radio, she and I actually met on Twitter and then started speaking on the phone, and that's where Kevin came in because she knew Kevin from Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. And I make a practice, actually, when I meet people on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn who I find really interesting, I actually do try to make dates with people to talk on the phone or even better to talk on Skype so we can actually see one another's faces. So I, I can't talk to everyone I meet online because there's just too many people, but I have parlayed some of those virtual uh, relationships into face-to-face or telephone relationships, which to me is really gratifying. I I agree. I'm the same way. I encourage people to if I give you my number, uh you know, I, I think that is that definitely um you know, speaks volumes in the sense I want to take that next step, you know, in our relationship and, and really hear from you and engage in that kind of conversation. And I tell people, keep my number, call me, text me or right. text me in a sense like, you know, hey, are you available to talk? Uh, you know, can you chat? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. love chatting it up. I do too, and and I especially more and more I like Skype because I really do like seeing the person's face and even seeing the room where they're sitting, you know, what it looks like where they are, or getting a sense of their environment, and it's even more personal. So I'm I'm leaning more and more towards Skype in terms of developing my relationships with with people out there in the in the ethers. Right, right. Well, no, that's that's great. And um, again, you know, the book did talk about uh, podcasting, Keith. So maybe we should think about doing some podcasting or a radio show or something like that. Right. Yeah, I, I've been wondering. You and I have talked about doing, a, you know, special podcasts that will will put up on the website or whatever. But it won't be an actual radio show. It'll just be a pre-recorded yeah. podcast that people can hook in on. So that's something I think we might want to develop in 2013. So stay tuned, folks, because things are going to be changing and developing here at RNFM Radio. And speaking of developing, I just want to go into a little list of who's coming up in the next few weeks. We have some very interesting uh, nurses and nurse entrepreneurs coming up in, in the near future. Next Monday, January 21st, 2013, we have Mary Elaine Keener. She's a very interesting nurse entrepreneur with a very interesting personal and professional story and very excited to have her on. She actually called in with Elizabeth Scala last week. So Mary Elaine was on the show for just several minutes on last week. On the 28th, that's two weeks from tonight, we have David Rodriguez. He's here in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and he's the director of Del Corazon Hospice of Santa Fe. And we're not going to be talking about death and dying. We're actually going to be talking about how to start a home health business. How do you navigate Medicare and Medicaid? How do you even do it? And there might be some nurses out there who really want to know how to start a home health care business. And uh, Kev, you said you were really interested in that conversation. Well, I am because I get a lot of that when I'm coaching uh, budding nurse entrepreneurs. They they do ask me uh, that question because a lot of the assumption is like when I tell people I own my own business, they they uh, typically assume I have a home health agency or something like that. And I mean, I know it sounds similar, but it's not at all, quite frankly. And so I think this will be some valuable content that people will really want to tune in to because. There are quite a few interested uh, healthcare providers out there that are looking uh, down that avenue uh, to to pursue opening up That's an true. agency. 
That's right. And and with this uh, aging baby boomer population coming up, you know, every month people are retiring and entering those older years. We're going to need more home health care agencies because we don't want people to be put in institutions and nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities if it's not necessary. So the more that can be stay at home and have home health care agencies taking care of them, the better, because that's the place we can really do the preventive nursing and medicine that keeps people healthy and keeps them home and safe. Um, and finally, like I mentioned in the final moments of our conversation with Ramona and Irene, on February 4th, 2013, Beth Lincoln, she's a master's prepared nurse. She's a cultural competence specialist, and she's the author of Reflections from Common Ground, Cultural Awareness in Healthcare. And I haven't finished the book yet, but I'm still working on it. It's on my bookshelf, and I will have a review of that and some information about Beth's book prior to that show at the beginning of February. And Kevin, can I mention something special that's coming up later this week? Of course you can. Ah, thank you, sir. That's so kind of you. I'll just say that Elizabeth Scala, Coach Scala, who was on the show last week, has her own radio show here on Blog Talk Radio, and I will be appearing on her show this Friday at 11 o'clock Eastern, 9 o'clock Mountain, and that's 8 a.m. Pacific. So if you go to livingsublimewellness.com, that's livingsublimewellness.com, you will see Coach Scala's a link to her show, and you can hook in there and uh, listen to the show live. I'll be on for 30 minutes with her, and we'll be talking about what else? Self-care and wellness for nurses. I'm sure you're surprised at that, Kevin, that that's the subject of our conversation. Not at all, but what I think that people, <laughs> our, our listeners really need to take away from this is that uh, it, it does speak volumes because Keith and I, again, are very, we are true to our word. We want to help the community out there, the nursing profession, and we we talk all the time with these other entrepreneurs that we have on the show, or entrepreneur or not, we like to collaborate. We like to get involved. We like to continue building the community, and you are teaming up with Elizabeth uh, you know this uh, on, on this show coming up, and I just I don't know I I just think like I said it speaks volumes. It does well. Thanks for your support, and we'll be tweeting out that information about my appearance as well. You can find at Nurse Keith on Twitter and at Coach Scala on Twitter and at RNFM Radio, and you can also find it on all the Facebook pages, either Facebook.com/slash Nurse Keith Coaching. Facebook.com slash RNFM Radio, and you can find all the information there about my appearance on Friday morning with Elizabeth. We're very excited about that. And she'll be back on the show in March. So we'll have a lot of uh, FaceTime, so to speak, or voice time with Elizabeth in the coming months. And we're excited about our collaboration with her. Anyway, Kevin, do you have any final words before we uh, start the outro and say goodnight for the evening? Just that I thoroughly enjoyed myself uh, talking technology, social media, apps, and, you know, like I said, I'm uh, very fluent in a lot of these apps. Like I said, I use iTriage quite often uh, to look at those rashes, pictures of rashes, and right. look up medications, and the information is just right there at your fingertips. But as always, do your due diligence, do your research, uh, find those resources that are uh, a viable and safe option uh, for your clinical practice, and, of course, for your patients. And that's just our little disclaimer. 
Well said, Kev. So I'm going to let you have the final word for the night. I'm going to say goodnight from Chile, Santa Fe, and we'll, I'll see you all next week on the 21st here with Kevin. So take it away, Kev, and good night, everyone. You bet, Keith. And as always, uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed myself uh, or, you know, spending time with you, Keith. And it is chilly here in Colorado. It's in the single digits. But as always, we do uh, wish you a good evening, good day or good morning, depending on what time you're listening to us here at RNFM. We're working hard to bring you valuable content while creating a global exchange among nurses and other clinicians to help bridge those gaps for our patients. So as always, until next time. We thank you for listening in, and we will uh, be back here next week. 